eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Year's worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Part of TheFinsider.com and the SB Nation Network. And now, your host, Matthew Kanata, joined by co-hosts Josh Houts and Aaron Sutton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Finsider Radio. This is Matthew Kanata. I'm joined tonight by Aaron Sutton. Unfortunately, Houts is on baby duty, so he cannot join us tonight. But we're going to kick right into things here. We're going to do things a little differently on this episode. We're going to be joined by Arif Hassan of The Athletic covering the Minnesota Vikings and throughout this podcast which is a little longer than normal we're going to really get into the details of the Vikings and the Dolphins matchup on Sunday we're going to have a conversation so basically Arif is our co-host for the evening and what's great about this is Arif is going to post this very same thing on his own podcast for his Vikings Dolphins preview as well so we're going to co- we're going to cover all the details of the matchup We're going to give you analysis on both teams, and we're going to provide you with all the information you need to know leading into Sunday's game. So, Arif, thank you for joining Finsider Radio. We're going to let you kick things off, let you have the floor to begin. Uh, Yeah, no, this uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, I think there's like a lot, especially because, you know, they're AFC teams. We don't have, uh, you know, a ton of exposure to the other team. If we're paying attention to the AFC East, it's usually the Patriots. People are paying attention to the NFC North. Very often it's the Packers, which probably less interesting conversation than it typically is now it's the bears um but i i think people are not really 
uh, up to things, especially here in Minnesota, about what's happening uh, in Miami. Like, you know, I, I think people don't have a good sense of, you know, the quality of the team. You know, is it, you know, is it a good defense? They've got a lot of interceptions. Is it a poor defense? They give up a bunch of yards. You know, is Ryan Tanhill going to play? Is he up to play? You know, those sorts of questions. So uh, it should be a pretty good show. Uh, I want to kind of get get it all started by asking kind of the first question, um, which is you know, nerdy. Uh, it's going to be about the offensive line. I think uh, over the years we've kind of gotten used to the idea that the Miami offensive line has been just really bad, that they haven't invested a lot in it. They, of course, have had multiple controversies surrounding it. Um, but this past year, my sense is that it's not nearly in the place that it has been in the past. That the offensive line, you know, has improved. Am I am I wrong about that? Is is that kind of like a, a mistake, or or they have they genuinely improved? And if so, how? Yeah, no, the offensive line for the Dolphins right now is a complete mess. It's a complete disaster. Before, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, in the off season, they had worked to strengthen it, and it paired by move, uh, the moves they made on paper. They did strengthen it, but very early injuries to Daniel Kilgore, the center they got from San Francisco after moving on from Mike Pouncey. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Josh Sitton as well, who they got. Uh, he was a great pass protector. Kilgore was kind of a poor man's Mike Pouncey, I like to say. Um, different strengths, different weaknesses. And then they had Jesse Davis and Juwan James and Larry Thompson. So their bookends are fantastic. And one thing you need to watch with uh, the Dolphins offensive line on Sunday when, when the Vikings and Dolphins face off is Juwan James. And they've been using him to pull a lot more. And you'll see him pulling off to the left side of the line of scrimmage. And he did that quite often in the Patriots game and actually contributed to a lot of big runs from Frank Gore and Kenyon Drake. So be aware of that. And Laramie Tunsil has improved greatly um, from, from his rookie season where he played guard, then shifted to left tackle last year, struggled a bit, but has really upped his play. So the bookends are solid. Um, you know, you got Ted Larson there. I know his name's been being floated around this week with the miracle in Miami, but really he struggles quite a bit on the mm-hmm. offensive line. And Travis Swanson, he's just another guy. You know, he's not, he's not terrible. He's not great. Uh, injuries have hurt the position a lot. But, you know, the Vikings, with, with the pass rush they, they have at times and so forth, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how much pressure they can get on the Dolphins. And I think this particular game sets up better for, the, uh, for, for passing than it does rushing in terms of Dolphins' offense. We've, we were pretty productive in the last game against the Patriots, but when you kind of rewind the tape a little bit further behind that, you don't see a consistently productive running game. And I think we're going to have to come out and pass. But that's kind of a difficult proposition because Minnesota has one of the better secondaries in the NFL. So, Reef, I'll throw this to you. I'm the Dolphins. I want to attack your linebackers. How am I going to do that? Um, <laughs> yeah, so – so uh, if, uh, if, if you wanted to throw against the linebackers, this would be a pretty good year for it because uh, the Vikings linebackers are typically good in coverage, and, and this year uh, they've, they've kind of fallen off. Unless Eric Wilson you know, sees a lot of the field, he's been uh, a really excellent linebacker in coverage, uh, like really phenomenally excellent, like kind of unbelievable. But you know, he's such a liability against the run that they don't want to put him out there. Plus, I mean, Eric Hendricks, Anthony Barr, those are your starters. You're not really going to move on from them. Um, so uh, Eric Hendricks has had a lot of trouble this year in coverage. Uh, he gave up 97 yards to James White, um, which uh, and just in coverage. I think James White ended up with a lot more receiving yards total. Um, and Anthony Barr has uh, improved pretty substantially in coverage, and he's actually been from snap to snap pretty good. Uh, but you know, you'll always find kind of just a big play, especially earlier in the year, a big play where he's kind of given up, um, you know, a big reception. But he he's been actually better than Kendricks. It's very unusual given kind of Kendricks' reputation as a, as a really high level coverage line. 
the back door. They have been giving Kendricks um, the running backs in coverage, and, and very often that's the more difficult of the two matchups uh, that they end up putting uh, on, on the linebackers. So very often I would expect, uh, you know, when the Vikings are man coverage for Kenyon Drake to to do a, a fair bit of damage. Um, if he's healthy enough to play, I think that that's a concern, um, if I remember correctly. But, uh, you know, if he is healthy enough to play, I think that uh, Drake will will do a lot probably to exploit the, the linebackers uh, in coverage. And then, you know, kind of in zone, it just feels like Kendricks is not, doesn't have a feel for um, for the way zones have been developing. And so very often when, you know, you put a defender in a conflict in zone, uh, that, that Kendricks kind of reads it the wrong way or floats in the wrong direction and creates a lot of space. So, uh, you know, rats to the inside that, that, that really put a lot of pressure on Kendricks specifically in his zone. I think that that's something that would probably end up with a lot of success, regardless of whether it's a receiver tight end or a running back. Um, with that in mind, I mean, like how how capable are the Dolphins of potentially achieving that? Um, I know that, for example, in the fourth round, they they drafted Kalen Balaj, who to me was a was a premier uh, pass catching running back, kind of despite his size profile and all that. Um, but yeah, I haven't heard his name a lot. Um, obviously, I've seen a lot of Drake. Um, what what do you see as as potentially the the Dolphins' strengths with regards to that matchup? Yeah, you know, Belange has gotten a lot more run recently, um, but he's still not crazy involved in the offense. More of a wildcat type guy, change of pace kind of guy. I thought it was interesting with the Dolphins when they played the Patriots this past Sunday. Brandon Bolden has been getting more and more work, and and he was he's actually scored two touchdowns, a long touchdown as well against the Patriots. So I'm curious to see if they're going to keep mixing him in. Uh, starting with the Bengals game, I think it was week three or week four, the Dolphins took Kenyon Drake out of the number one running back position and put Frank Gore in. And they're using him to mainly stay on schedule there. And, and what that means, as you know, Arif, but for those listening, is to keep the yards uh, moving in the positive direction, to shorten the distance on second down and ultimately shorten it on third down if they even get to the third down spot. But to make those second and third downs much more manageable. And while Frank Gore is has broken a few big runs, he's not going to take it to the house. But he just, you know, he, he sees that hole and he hits it right away. Kenyon Drake, and Adam Gase has said this too, is that he likes to hit the home run. And when you hit, try to hit the home run, sometimes you're going to get a loss of yards on the play. And that's what he's concerned about. So they've been mainly using Kenyon Drake as a pass-catching uh, receiver out of the backfield where Frank Gore is running with the ball uh, straight ahead and, and rumbling through the guys. So when you talk about, you know, your Vikings linebackers and, and their struggles – You're right, I think Kenyon Drake, and you're right with the shoulder injury, but he does seem to be improving. He should be ready to go on Sunday. If the Dolphins are able to get him into space, I think he can do great things on Sunday. Kalen Balazs, like you mentioned, again, doing some big things there when he gets the ball in his hands. He hasn't had too many opportunities, but you know, if he gets his chance, if anything were to happen to Gore or Drake, or if Drake can't continue because the shoulder becomes too much of an issue, I do think uh, Balazs can make some run there. And then, of course, again, you have Bolden. And I don't know if you wanted to add anything else, but the Dolphins running backs out of the backfield. Well, you know, I really appreciate getting into the X and uh, X's and O's. You know, I'm a I'm mostly a nerd in, in that regard. But I want to kind of address the elephant in the room, Arif. So you guys just fired your offensive coordinator. <laughs> yeah. Do you think this is that type of game for Minnesota where it's like a rallying point where, you know, both Minnesota and Miami have no room for error. I mean, absolutely no room for error where we are standing in the playoff picture. So do you see uh, John DiFilippo, his firing, do you see that as a, a, 
a catharsis, so to speak, or do you see this as uh, kind of a highway to hell, so to speak? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I honestly, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to like know. So my feelings are kind of what's guiding me here. Um, so I didn't actually agree with the decision. I'm not going to say that, you know, he called a great game against Seattle or anything like that, or that the offense hasn't been underperforming in pretty significant ways relative to its talent. Both of those things are true. Um, but I just think that with, you know, uh, coordinators very often, it might even take a year. And I think the best example of that is Kyle Shanahan. 2015, that offense was not performing up to its talent level. 2016, you, you had an MVP at quarterback. Um, so, uh, which I'm not saying that that was the likelihood either. But I, I do think that, you know, his approach to run the ball last was, was actually appropriate given the Vikings' strengths and weaknesses and given kind of what's been working in the NFL. Um, but, you know, you also have to, you know, be able to, like, play nice with others. And it sounds like... Uh, based off of, and you have to read between the lines because no one's saying this out loud, but based off of what we're seeing and hearing uh, is that there there might have been um, a little bit less communication between the quarterback and the offensive coordinator that you wanted, than you wanted. Um, obviously, you know, DeFilippo wasn't running the ball as much as Mike Zimmer wanted, which is something that he's been saying for a couple of weeks. Uh, and so uh, when you can't find a way to communicate with your head coach about what you think the appropriate game plan should be, or you're not listening to your boss about what you should be doing, even if you think, you know, maybe that that's not the right approach, uh, that makes you probably not a great offensive coordinator. Because even if you're right about a lot of the decisions that you make where you disagree with the head coach about something, uh, I think that the impact that it has on the team when you kind of disagree and, and, and it ends up becoming very public ends up hurting you more than any sort of theoretical expected points gained from passing the ball more often or something like that. So uh, with that in mind, I think Stefanski's, you know, he's really well liked. He's the longest tenured Vikings coach has survived um, since the Brad Childress era way back. Um, and so I, he's really well liked. And I think that they're probably going to be approaching the offense in a different way that is going to, I think, lead to more points uh, in at least the short term. Arif, would it be, would it be likely that Minnesota approaches this game with a run-first attitude. I mean, it seems like a, a statement sort of game. You, you make that change, and then you want to go out and you want to kind of enact the culture that you thought you sh should have seen. Culture is probably not the right word, more like scheme. You want to enact the scheme that you thought was going to be successful, and I'm sure Mike Zimmer in some ways just want to kind of control the game flow, and that was what he's used to in terms of a – a winning product. So do you see Minnesota coming out and being a little bit more run oriented? And do you think uh, Miami has the gusto to, to stick up to that in Minnesota in the freezing cold? Uh, well, it, luckily the game's indoors. So uh, the, <laughs> the issue with the cold is just going to be a residual problem traveling. Um, but uh, yeah, th th that I think is a really interesting question, especially because uh, Miami has a really interesting run defense numbers that I want to run by with you in a second. Um, but the first is, is, you know, I think that they will be running the ball a lot more because, you know, when the guy ahead of you gets fired because he's not running the ball and you get promoted, like, I, I think you run the ball. <laughs> you, you better run the ball. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> message received. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I don't know how effective it's going to be. I mean, they're just not a very effective uh, run-blocking unit, and I think that's, uh, that's a talent problem in a lot of ways. I don't think it's a schematic problem. The Vikings were very good last year at zone running, and it's 
a zone running scheme. It's the it was the same kind of offensive line system, and they they tend to be implemented by offensive line coaches more than offensive coordinators. Obviously, the passing of Tony Sperano, uh, you know, before the season started, has really impacted a lot of things. But I don't think having a new offensive coordinator is going to kind of reset where that offensive line was in terms of their ability to to block. So I don't think they're going to be making schematic changes. There's not time to make schematic changes. Uh, and so they're going to have to find a way to run the ball, given the plays that are already in their playbook and the techniques they've already taught to their offensive linemen. Um, so they're going to run the ball more. I don't know how much more effective it's going to be. Um, they're the least successful running unit in the league. They rank last in expected points per run. Um, and uh, obviously they rank like last in rushing yards and stuff like that because they don't run the ball much either. Uh, and so uh, that's going to be interesting. Uh, what's, what's curious about that, of course, is that Dalvin Cook is, is a really, really high-level running back. He ranks like third or fourth in PFF's elusive rating, uh, which combines you know missed tackles per rush and, and yards after contact and stuff like that into kind of one statistic about how you can force missed tackles. And very typically it's, uh, receiving backs like Kenyon Drake or Austin Eckler that rank really high in the statistic. And so when you get kind of a primary back that runs the ball a lot more, uh, ranking high in that statistic, I think that's really meaningful. So um, they may find ways around it, maybe run some more trap or wham plays. But it really does, I think, depend on the state of the, the Dolphins' defense. And so the question I have here is, I think the Dolphins are fourth in rushing yards allowed. They allow 4.8 yards a carry. But... And those are not great measures of running back success or rushing defense or offense. Um, and, and another measure that I just mentioned that might be better about it is expected points per rush. And they rank in the middle of that. And so, you know, you could say, hey, the rushing defense is bad. They give up all these yards. They give up all these yards per attempt. But you take a look at the context in which these runs occur and it's about league average. What's the split here? What's closer to representing the actual Miami run defense? And what's, uh, you know, what, what's there to worry about from a Miami perspective when the Vikings run the ball? I'm glad you said within the context, Arif, because I was going to start off with that. The Dolphins, you know, they, they've given up a lot of chunk plays. From When you look at play to play to play, they're, you're right. They're right within the league average of what they're doing with their run defense. And they're stuffing the run. You know, they're, they're opposing running backs are getting a few yards per rush. But then sometimes there will be a breakdown in coverage and the running back will break open for a long touchdown or a long run. And the other thing that the Dolphins really struggle with, and I know Kirk Cousins isn't the most mobile quarterback, but he does have some legs on him, is they've really struggled with uh, scrambling quarterbacks this season. Uh, Josh Allen absolutely destroyed them. Two weeks ago with the Buffalo Bills, Andrew Luck even scrambled to bit Aaron Rodgers when they played the Packers. Deshaun Watson went crazy all over them. If they really struggle. If the quarterback can get out of the pocket, then then the Dolphins are going to have a tough time. Um, that being said, I don't know how much Kirk is going to run. You mentioned Dalvin with, with his stats there and averaging 4.2 yards per carry this season. Only 367 yards on the season, 87 rushes. Had those injuries earlier in the year to start off and then uh, lingered a bit. Last year, he tore his ACL halfway through the season, or just about. At that point, he was uh, averaging, you know, around the same. His career average is 4.5 yards per carry. And you're right, you know, with the back and forth between Filippo and Zimmer, and Zimmer basically publicly saying we need to run the ball more, then covering and saying, no, they don't have any issues, they communicate well, and so forth. We know the Vikings are probably going to try to establish to run on Sunday. Now, what's interesting is this. The Dolphins bottled up the Patriots running backs. Uh, they only allowed 77 rushing yards on Sunday. Earlier in the season, 
they allowed 175 rushing yards to the Patriots. And what I noticed the Dolphins did differently throughout the game is they put five men on the defensive line and went with two linebackers. So I'm curious to see if that's going to be a trend moving forward or if that was just something to throw off the Patriots because of what they've been showing on tape and wanting to give a different look. I suspect they may try to use it more because it works so effectively against the Patriots. Now, the downside to that is, yes, you have uh, Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. I'm not really too concerned about Kyle Rudolph there. He's been slowing down this year and has struggled to be consistent. But you also have Laquan Laquan Treadwell as well, who who can uh, break open in the field. So I'm worried about that respect that the Dolphins try to shut down the run. But I will say it's it's basically hit or miss. If Dalvin can break a long run, if, if he can get in the open field, then the rushing game can be successful in terms of stats and yards and moving the ball. But in terms of from play to play to play to play, the Dolphins are pretty much right there and won't give up too much um, unless they get that chunk play out there. I think first first down run defense is going to be really important for the Dolphins. Uh, sorry, for the Dolphins defense on Sunday. Wow, I just had like three different tongue twisters right in a row. But uh, yeah, so it's going to be really important uh, that we do better on, on first down. And one of the issues that we saw throughout the tape that's starting to get cleaned up a little bit or some gap integrity issues and I think that was a coaching and schematic thing I don't think it's a lack of talent of what we have in the linebacker unit so I think we're seeing a little bit better uh, coverage in terms of uh, being sound with our with our assignments and through that and through sound tackling uh, we're, we're getting some better results in the run defense but the unfortunate aspect of that is that it's been inconsistent and it's been inconsistent throughout the season. So it's kind of hard to say how physical we're going to come out on Sunday. All right. That's um, let's talk about some of the individual players, I think uh, involved in the, in, in the Dolphins run defense, because I think that's kind of an interesting conversation too. I think Cameron Wake is playing something like 55% of snaps, but when he's on the field, he's still playing, uh, at a really high level. And he's going to be going against Brian O'Neill, who uh, looks like he's cleared to play. Um, there were some concerns because he had to leave the game uh, last week, but may end up having struggles as kind of just a rookie right tackle up against a veteran defensive end. But uh, he's, uh, Cameron Wake's not playing 90% of snaps or 80% of snaps or anything like that. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, you know he's being used as uh, you know a third down guy because he has a ton of pressures on for the year despite not having a ton of sacks. Uh, and kind of what's happening when he's off the field? Are they primarily kind of a run defense sort of Saturday having a run-heavy defensive lineman play there? Uh, how's Robert Quinn doing? Uh, Defon Gacho is somebody that I didn't really like coming out of the draft, but it seems like he's playing a little bit better uh, than, than I expected. Despite that, you know, you've got these kind of weird numbers for, for Miami's run defense. Kind of what members of the defensive line um, are kind of responsible for, good or bad, the state of the Miami run defense? Devon Godshaw, I would agree, Arif. You know, when Houts and I looked at his tape, it seemed really dependent on how he timed the snap. I mean, each and every snap, it was either he was on it and he was wreaking havoc or he was the last one to the party and not a cool way. So the fact that he has been able to turn it on as a professional has been a pretty welcome sight for us, a, a fifth-round investment there. We've had, unfortunately, a couple of injuries along that group. And William Hayes, we, we lost him early, and he was a, a tone setter for us. And uh, that, that, was, that was a big loss for us. But then you have, you know, 
Robert Quinn, you asked about him. He, I would say, he's up and is showing a little bit of production, but does it justify the contract that he would make next year? And it's one of those contracts where we could save a lot of money and there's no dead money involved. So that's kind of a sidebar issue with Robert Quinn going going forward, but pretty average play, I would say. If Cameron I could just Wake, jump in about yeah, Quinn sure. real quick, Sutton. If, if you look at his run-stop percentage, it, it's – probably right in the middle of the league in terms of the edge guys, but his run stop percentage is 7.5%. And when you look at that, you know, the guy with the, with the, you know, you look at Clayus Campbell, who's played the most snaps at the top there, his run stop percentage is 13.9%. So it's not a huge difference, but, you know, Robert Quinn, like Cam Wake, is more of an edge rusher, more of a pass rusher. But when you look at Quinn versus Wake in terms of setting the edge and stopping the run, Quinn is the better player there. But I wouldn't say he's dynamite all-star player stopping the run. Exactly, and we're we're a group that likes to rotate, so it, it ends up that offensive play callers can kind of pick on some of the weak links in this group, and some of the weak links, Andre Branch, when he's in, doesn't bring that much to the table. Charles Harris, Dolphins fans are starting to enter the territory, whether he's a bust or not. Most would probably say that he is at this point, and then you have some backups who wouldn't ordinarily be getting as many snaps as you would like, but that's the situation of the National Football League with injuries. So we're playing guys like Ziggy Hood and Akeem Spence. Now Akeem Spence likely would have been our, you know, number three defensive tackle, but is getting number two defensive tackle snaps and sometimes that rears its ugly head. So it can come in different ways. One of the frustrating things from my standpoint was you know, we, we came in running the wide nine defensive scheme, so it's vaunted supposedly for not being able uh, to allow runs to get outside. It's better at setting the edge, but we still have not been that successful at even setting the edge, even with the wide nine. So to me, it really just depends on how uh, physical everybody comes out and plays on Sunday. We've seen it differently at home and on the road we tend to be a little bit more smash mouth at home a little bit more communication issues a little bit more tentative on the road and just that subtle difference can uh, magnify itself kind of over time during these games and Arif just a quick note since Sutton opened the door to the, uh, the Dolphins poor play on the road the Vikings five and three at U.S. Bank Stadium in 2016 seven and one in 2017 four and two this year how big of a home field advantage now in the dome um obviously in the dome before as well but but a more efficient field a a more you know acoustic uh acoustical advantage for the vikings in their home stadium how much is that going to make a difference and how much has it made a difference since that stadium opened yeah no um it feels like the vikings do have a really significant home field advantage uh and uh that might just be because the the future performances we've seen uh, when they have been bad, have been on the road. Um, so, you know, it might be a little bit of one or the other. But, uh, yeah, you know, I don't really know kind of what specific qualities have led to uh, their kind of home away split. Um, a lot of it might have to just do with the fact that, you know, with an in controlled environment, um, you don't have to deal with kind of the weather patterns screwing up with your, your passing game and stuff like that. Um, but some of it might be just uh, the particular areas of every field. And if you're used to, um, the, the kind of field uh, that, that you have, you're going to perform better on it, especially when you've got something like a, a turf grass 
kind of split. Um, you just kind of know what kind of movements will get you where and, and with how much uh, energy. And so that, I think, kind of plays a big role. Obviously, um, you know, the acoustic environment is really important. And uh, when when they were in a temporary home at TCF Bank Stadium uh, before they moved to U.S. Bank Stadium, um, you didn't really have that acoustic advantage. They had fewer fans in the stands. Obviously, it's open air. Uh, and so that plays a big role. Uh, and, and I think that that you know, it's kind of allowed them to, to generate some advantages on defense. You know, there have been some time odds that have been called as a result of the combination of, of Zimmer's defense throwing a confusing look and the fans being loud enough to prevent adjustments and stuff like that. Um, all of those might play a role. It's, it's, it's always difficult to tell kind of what specific thing it is, um, but it's very clear that the Vikings do have one. And there's some research that indicates that, you know, newer stadiums tend to have uh, bigger home field advantages and that advantage diminishes over time. So that might be part of it, too. It's just, you know, other teams are just not used to that environment at all. Um, so, yeah, no, that that all, I think, plays a role. Um, kind of switching tacks a little bit, we talked a little bit about uh, the defensive linemen. I do want to ask about the secondary because I think it's one of the more intriguing secondaries. I don't want to say it's like the best or the worst or anything like that. It's it's really fascinating, right, because they've got Micah Fitzpatrick, Xavier Howard is playing. Um, some games he's playing like out of his mind, like he's one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. And some games feels like he's getting burned. Uh, Rashad Jones might be the most underrated safety in the league. He's really fun to watch. Um, the secondary overall, it just feels kind of fascinating. Can I get like kind of a rundown on what roles, especially players like Micah Fitzpatrick, what roles everyone's playing, and kind of how that manifests in 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 the Dolphins' defensive scheme? So we're playing Mink at boundary corner. We weren't. I don't think anybody was expecting that coming into this season. No. Yeah. So we were kind of looking at him in a Swiss Army knife role, and and thank God he's embraced that boundary role because, you know, we, we had Cordrea Tankersley that we were high on coming into the season who, for whatever reason, has fallen off the face of the earth, had some injuries on that side. Xavier Howard likely, from what I've seen, is not going to play this Sunday. And in my opinion, should probably just shut him down for the season, in my opinion, simply because he's one of those players that we might be looking at investing in relatively soon. So you have to look at the long-term investment aspect of that. So what you saw last week without Xavier Howard is you saw Minka shadow Josh Gordon last week. And I'm curious if they would take that same approach. So I don't know if they would have make a shadow Adam Thielen and then hope that Bobby, you know, a com- combination of Bobby McCain and uh, Tory McTire can limit Stefan Diggs enough. But I will admit that I think the Dolphins are catching a lucky break in the sense that the Vikings might be predisposed to going with that rushing attack and not taking a the clear advantage, in my opinion, that the Vikings wide receivers have over the secondary. So this might be kind of a situational lucky thing for the Dolphins in that sense. So I I do think that there are some weaknesses that can be exploited in this Dolphins secondary. Tom Brady likely could have put up even more stats than what he did last week. So it was just a, a, a a bend not break sort of thing last week and we broke a ton also so it, it definitely makes me nervous with this uh this kind of stew of the vikings being a little pissed off just fired their offensive coordinator want to make a statement have some talent advantages in the secondary so i i just hope that you guys are so focused on establishing the run that you forget about <laughs> the advantages that you have on the boundary <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, it'll actually be it'll be pretty interesting to see uh, who shadows who uh, and whatnot because um, you end up seeing uh, there's a strong shadow on Adam Thielen by Jerry Alexander uh, in week 12. There's kind of a, a, a strong shadow by Patrick Peterson and Stephon Gilmore uh, on Stephon Diggs. Uh, and so different teams have decided to shadow different players. And I think I think Jason McCourty, for example, shadowed Adam Thielen. Uh, Nevin Lawson, uh, but that was because uh, they kind of played sides. It was kind of a weird uh, uh, game with the with the Detroit Lions. Um, but you know, different teams have chosen to shadow a different receiver. And I think a lot of it might have to do with the fact that Adam Thielen is much more likely to go in the slot. I think 60% of his snaps have been in the slot. And so if you shadow him, you have to be prepared to let your cornerback uh, play in the slot, which is like kind of just a whole different um, position, especially in the modern NFL. Um, so uh, I kind of I don't know what you know that ends up looking like for the Dolphins. Um, sometimes they've decided to shadow one player. Uh, this is what the Patriots did. They shadowed um, Adam Thielen, and then they put just a double team on Diggs uh, in in a very like literal sense. Like they had two players at the line of scrimmage, and they just followed him, not just like a bracket. Um, and then actually the Seahawks did the same thing. It was like the most bizarre thing because the only other time I've ever seen it in the NFL was with Calvin Johnson. Uh, where they just literally just put two eyes. I've seen with Randy Moss too, but in the recent NFL, um, where they just put two cornerbacks or two defenders as if they were like jammers on a punt, right? Uh, and they just like follow. Like one has outside leverage, one has inside leverage. It's it's bizarre. It must be really interesting to try and coach that. Um, but it happened in the last two games where uh, you know both both receivers were doubled in the Seahawks game. Stephon Diggs was doubled. Again, in a literal sense, in both games, uh, but especially in uh, in the Patriots game, and in one snap, because of the way the the safety rolled down, Stephon Diggs was triple teamed. Uh, it, it's it's bizarre, kind of what happens. And so uh, the strategy of shadowing one and doubling the other has you know come up. I think it happened um, kind of in the Cardinals game, although that was kind of a more traditional double team where you've got a bracket up top. Um, you know, if I'm the Dolphins, yeah, I mean, obviously the the ideal approach is for the Vikings to, like, constantly seek to establish the run. Um, but I think that they should try and throw a variety of uh, of, of coverages out there just because um, I think shadowing one and, and, and doubling the other or whatever, it's going to create kind of an expectation and it's going to create very similar looks over the course of the game. And if you mix things up, it's going to make it very difficult for Kirk Cousins, who relies a lot on his pre-snap read, to try and figure out who he has to go to. So that, I think, um, I don't know, that's going to be interesting to find out, just because of, of how things um, have kind of progressed over the season and that the Vikings have been getting less and less good, as it were, at exploiting their other options when it comes to receiving. I mean, we've seen Audrey Robinson run up the seam, for example, uh, against a linebacker, and, and you know Cousins checks down to, to Dalvin Cook, and so... Uh, that that ends up being um, kind of a, a fascinating and important conversation for the Vikings, kind of how they adapt to that and what the Dolphins do. I think conversely, I think there's some really good questions to ask about uh, the the Dolphins receiving core. Um, so uh, obviously, um, like uh, Kenny Stills is a is an interesting deep threat who can do a lot. Uh, Devontae Parker uh, has been, I don't know, it feels like his career is revived and then dropped off and then revived and then dropped off. And I still remember a couple of years <laughs> ago, the road of life. Right, yeah. Um, I remember the Roto World. Well, I guess Roto World just reported it, but this is where I read it. Um, that he was watching like his college tape a couple years ago to remind himself that he was still good. Yeah. Um, okay, that was him. Okay. Strange, uh, right? 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, okay, so it's easy to make fun of, but I mean, like, whatever works, honestly. Right, right. Um, Lanta Carew is somebody that I really, really liked a lot coming out of the draft. Sounds like he hasn't done much. Um, what, do you, what do you feel is the state of the, the Dolphins receiver core? And obviously I missed um, uh, Danny Amendola. But what do you feel is the state of the Dolphins receiving core? How do you feel that they match up against, you know, maybe Xavier Rhodes is underperforming? a little bit this year, but you know, he still has Xavier Rose, Trey Waynes, who's been playing pretty well, uh, Harrison Smith, uh, and, and Anthony Harris, who's been playing really well, as well as you know, Kenzie Alexander, who over the past couple of weeks has really gone on and uh, you know, improved in a big way. Yeah, I mean, the Dolphins receiving core, it's, it's obviously different with Ryan Tannehill and Brock Osweiler, way different. Kenny Stills has you know, not had a huge season in terms of stats, um, but you also have to look at Brock Osweiler never looked his way at all, really, when he was in as quarterback. So with Ryan Tannehill in there, him and Kenny have a great connection. And I know the Dolphins have been purposely trying to script plays Kenny's way to get him more involved. And Kenny, I think I saw a stat earlier today, he has uh, first most or second most uh, long touchdown receptions throughout his career uh, over the past several years. When you look at his you know, next-gen stats, his cushion that he gets uh, between himself and, and the defenders is 5.9 yards. The, the person who has the best is Deshaun Jackson at 7.3 yards. But, you know, when you look at Kenny, that's probably the top 30 in the league or so. And Stefan Diggs is right near him as well. Kenny gets good separation uh, between him and the defenders as well there, getting in a 2.5-yard separation when the top guy is right above him there just about a yard more and the bottom guy is down at 1.7, um, Kelvin Benjamin towards the bottom of the league there. So, Kenny, you know, the long ball, that's his forte. He's going to, you know, run some slants and try to make some things happen in the space there. Devontae Parker, up and down. Uh, we all saw him on primetime there. He had a huge game against the Texans. We do think the Dolphins were trying to showcase him there for a potential trade. And then he got hurt, I believe, in practice later that week oh, before the no trade way. deadline. Yeah, so uh, what a surprise there. Um, but he's he's been up and down. Uh, he's not a reliable receiver. You got Danny Amendola. He's the slot guy. He's a poor man's Jarvis Landry. Obviously not as good as Jarvis Landry, but he's the guy that filled his role. Earlier in the season, the Dolphins had Albert Wilson, who was a playmaker, who Yak made a lot King, of things Albert happen Wilson, with his speed. Right? What was that? Yak King. Albert Wilson, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Between him and Golden Tate. Golden Tate's not doing much in Philly now either. Um <laughs> But, you know, the Dolphins receiving core, you're right. Leontay Crew, the Dolphins loved him. A lot of people loved him. Dolphins gave up a lot of draft picks to go get him, and he has not done a lot of great things in Miami. And Mike Gazicki, when you look at the other pass catchers on a team, he's done basically nothing as well. That's the rookie tight end there. So, But the Dolphins still find ways to make things happen. And, you know, that's the crazy part. When you look at their record, and they're still right in the thick of the playoff race, and, you know, they, it's, they, they get chunk plays. It's not like they're going to sit there and uh, drive down the entire field on you. They're most likely not going to do that. They're going to get the big plays, the chunk plays, and that's what really kind of keeps them in games and helps them win games, as we've seen in multiple games this season. Um, you, you know, Ryan Tannehill has improved. I think he's thrown eight touchdown passes since he's returned. That's the best in the league, and his quarterback rating since coming back from his injury is one of the best in the league as well. So he, he has improved since coming back from the injury. He is more efficient. He is locking onto his receivers more, getting them the ball quickly, letting them make plays in space. Um, in terms of scaring a defensive secondary like the Vikings, I don't think the Vikings should be too concerned about that. All right, yeah, I yeah. don't think this is. I don't think this is a game that Tannehill comes out and throws it 42 times and we mm -hmm. find success. I think 
we have to find some kind of balance somehow. I think with some of the injuries, just where it hurts us is not being able to push the ball down the field as much as we'd like. So it just brings defenders up and it ends up stifling the run game, you know, as a kind of a indirect sort of thing. So unfortunately we, you know, we'd like to be able to move the ball vertically a little bit better. We were able to do that against the Patriots a little bit better. And, and Tannehill certainly pushes the ball down the field vertically much more than Osweiler does. Uh, but we still, you know, are, are relying on dink and dunk stuff. And when that stuff isn't working, it can really interrupt the game flow for us offensively. All right. That all makes sense. Unfortunately for the dolphins. Um, so my next question is then about this tight end unit, because, I mean, you mentioned uh, the rookie, Mike Osecki. Obviously, he had this incredible combine that everyone's paying attention to, uh, and he hasn't materialized a ton as a pass catcher coming out. People thought him as kind of a pass catcher only. Um, and that's fine. Obviously, there's a bunch of tight ends that have been pretty valuable. I think Zach Ertz is a really good example of one that have been pass catching tight ends kind of only. But you mentioned a lot that um, – or you mentioned that the right tackle, Juwan James, likes to pull a lot, and that very often means – you've got a tight end down blocking next to him. Um, not always, but, you know, very often. And if that's the case, you know, uh, I, I want to know, like, kind of how good has Nick O'Leary been as a run blocking tight end? Um, Derm Smythe coming I think that's another rookie. Derm Smythe coming out of Notre Dame, really great blocking tight end. I thought at the senior bowl he looked like a better receiver than I thought. But, you know, I'm not sure he's getting necessarily a ton of snaps. But I do kind of want to know what the state of the run blocking looks like on the outside when you've got tight ends doing some dirty work. It's a little bit better than we expected, to be honest with you. And Nick O'Leary has been a really nice find by this organization mid-season by a, you know, a division rival. He was with Buffalo. So to scoop him up, you kind of get that insider knowledge, so to speak. And he's really come out. And one of his first games, he came out and just killed it. Now, he's obviously tamed off a little bit since then. We're getting some average tight end play. But for someone that you pick up midseason to be ranked in the top 25 by PFF, I think that's that's a win for us. And I think he's he's done nicely in both respects. He has sure hands, and he's been legitimate in the run blocking position. Mike Jasicki, you know, we're a little bit conflicted about him in Dolphins land. You mentioned the outstanding measurables from the combine. You see it translate a little bit, but you also see the baby giraffe sort of steps that he's trying to take. I want to kind of encourage my own patients by saying that tight ends probably have one of the steeper learning curves of Mm -hmm. any college player coming into the NFL, but we certainly, I think, expected a few more jump ball scenarios in the end zone and just kind of have a few highlight plays to chew on going into a sophomore season. So we really haven't seen that much from Mike Jasicki. Durham Smythe, you know, has just a hair over a hundred snaps. So haven't seen much out of him. He's been pretty decent in a, in a pass blocking sense so that we usually bring him in, you know, in in a, a 12 personnel grouping and keep him into block and kind of rotate the line. Uh, AJ Derby was another guy that we had who's someone that's on IR who was probably one of our, our probably our best performing tight end, to be honest with you, not named Nick O'Leary. So not having him has decreased the versatility a little bit, but the tight ends simply are not 
a featured route in the Miami Dolphin offense right now, I'd be surprised if they're more than a third read at this point, uh, red zone notwithstanding. So I don't think, unfortunately, you know, I, I was asking you earlier about how to attack these linebackers because I really want these tight ends to be able to take advantage of those matchups. I'm just not sure that we're going to be able to do it. All right. Uh, important question. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this interview after James and I recorded the mailbag. And so uh, for listeners, this will be a preview of one of the questions in the mailbag, but I already answered that there. But I do want your question, uh, your answer to this question. Is Frank Gore a Hall of Famer? First ballot Hall of Famer, no doubt. First, first ballot. <laughs> no doubt. The dude is 35 years old right now. Doesn't run like he's 35 years old. I think he's, what, number four on the all-time yards of scrimmage yeah, of list. Uh, if he plays another season, probably going to get to number three, but that's probably as far as he's going to get. Mm. This dude is, is a freak. I was in the locker room several weeks ago when the Dolphins played the Raiders earlier in the season, and Frank Gore walked right past me. The dude is a damn tank. He is massive. He is built. And he's just been so consistent throughout his NFL career. And to have the storied career that he's had, yeah, I absolutely think he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Do you think? Do you think it's important to you know that that someone in the Hall of Fame? So the the test I used when I talked about this again in the future uh, was uh, was that I think that you know you need to be one of the two or three best players of your position unless it's a decadal position like quarterback where someone's just going to be at the top for you know a decade and a half. Um, do you think Frank Gore has ever been one of the best two or three running backs? And, or, and do you think that's really important for a Hall of Fame discussion? Because you know obviously we've got like players like Jerome Bettis in the Hall of Fame too. That's an interesting question because when you when you put it like that, I, I don't think Frank Gore has been at the discussion when you look at the NFL running backs of the top running back, right? You've had guys like LaDainian Tomlinson. You guys had like Jamal Charles up there and, and others who have had their runs at the top for a few years. But Frank Gore has never really been in that discussion. I'm not sure if because he's not a flashy type running back where he just grinds it out and gets the yards that he needs – or if he truly really wasn't. Um, he's just an underrated player, in my opinion. I don't think he mm-hmm. gets the attention he deserves because he doesn't crave the attention that other running backs get. And and while some running backs don't crave the attention, you know, you look at a guy like Todd Gurley, it's not like he's out there campaigning for himself all the time, but he's the explosive type player where people are going to notice Frank Gore is not that. He's just a grinded-out player. Uh, for me, you know, I look at Hall of Fame guys and I say, can you tell the history of the game without this player and if you could tell the history of the game without this player then they probably don't belong in the hall of fame if you need that player to tell the history of the game that in their current era or their era in which they played then they do belong in the hall of fame when you look at frank gore based on the amount of yards from scrimmage he's gotten based on everything he's done throughout his career i think when you look at his era of football then i think you do need to tell the history of the game with him in there which is why i think he's a hall of famer and i would kind of compare him to Cal Ripken Jr. in baseball, like somebody that's not jacking 500-foot home runs and stealing tons of bases and making a bunch of huge highlight plays, but somebody that played the game really freaking well for a really long time. And I think in the game of football, the commodity is availability and the fact that Frank Gore's been playing for so long at one of the most devalued positions in the NFL to just go out and, and grind it out year after year and put up production each and every year. I think that's a testament to itself. I won't say that he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I think he gets in. 
Uh, okay, so final question about about this topic then, or I guess half question, uh, two questions. So one is, so this fir- the first argument that you made about that kind of consistency, not seeking out uh, attention, but like quietly performing without anyone noticing, that sounds like also a case for Steven Jackson to be in the Hall of Fame, uh, former uh, Rams and then I think briefly Falcons mm-hmm. running back. Um, do you think that makes sense, or has is, is Gore just been better for longer than Steven Jackson, so they're not comparable? I don't think I don't think they're comparable. Uh, okay. Stephen Jackson was a grinded out guy, but uh, you know you don't really think of Stephen Jackson when you think of you know the better running backs in those eras. Okay, and then second question: the you can't tell the the story of the NFL or the history of the NFL without that player. That test sounds like a case for Michael Vick to be in the Hall of Fame, despite him not playing very often and honestly on the aggregate not playing as well as I think a lot of people remember. So. Uh, would you put Michael Vick in the Hall of Fame based on that second test? You're getting me here, Reed. <laughs> hey, this is important. You're right. He is important, right? Um, I mean, he's played what? He played from 2001 to 2015, obviously, towards the end of his career. Obviously not what he once was. Oof. You know, if he if he did not miss 2007, 2008, I think he'd be a surefire Hall of Famer because at that point, um, you know, he, he was on fire. He, he was – he had 24, 74 yards in 20, 2006, 2004 to 12 passing yards in 2005, 2003 to 13 the year before. Then he missed two seasons, but then he came back, right, in 2009 with the Eagles, only 86 uh, passing yards. But then went to Philadelphia for the next three years, 3,018, 3,303, 2,362, then 1,215, and then declined from there. I, I think a case can be made for him to be in the Hall of Fame, absolutely, but – we all know the Hall of Fame uh, writers and voters and those yeah, who judge yeah, everyone, yeah. all their moral compasses, right? So right. Vic definitely won't be a first ballot Hall of Famer, but I do think he's a very compelling case. And had it not been for that you know, unfortunate situation that he placed himself in, I would think he'd be a definite Hall of Famer for sure. I mean, right, thought, of, thought of another way. Could you imagine being in that moment watching Michael Vick lead the Falcons? I believe it was against the Green Bay Packers at Lambeau, watching him go in and lead that team to a victory and not think that he was going to make the Hall of Fame. I mean, he had so much forward momentum in terms of notoriety and just bringing the, the running quarterback into, you know, is an in vogue thing. I, I've loved watching Mike Vick play. I just don't know that he can escape the baggage that he's, right. that he has. Uh, I think the best argument I've heard for, for Mike Vick's candidacy, which I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to happen is that he's your favorite player's favorite player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there is there's one X's nose question I kind of just skipped over and I shouldn't have because uh, I think Zimmer mentioned him even in this presser uh, the linebackers and, and in particular Kiko Alonso who uh, has he has like a weird off field history if I recall correctly um, but you know he was a guy that from an on field perspective coming out of the draft at Oregon um, he was a guy that I kind of liked as a coverage guy. Um, but I, I feel like he's been up and down because with the Eagles, I feel like he's had a good season and a bad season with the Dolphins. I feel like he started out really rough, but like, what's the story with him? And then what's going on with the other linebackers? Like I know Stephon Anthony with the Saints had a really great rookie year and then just nothing. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it just feels like there's a conversation to be had that we're not having. Yeah. Kiko, I'm a big fan of Kiko Alonso. Not everybody is. Kiko came, you know, you're right. He started with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. Had a great season there. Went to the Buffalo Bills. 
right? Got traded from there, uh, came to Miami, and had a real good first year. Got signed to an extension and had a really rough second year. And this year, I think he's having a very underrated season. What I'll say about Kiko is if you try to throw him in coverage, good luck, because he's probably going to fall down or slip or lose sight of the player, and the player is most likely going to get a reception. But his run game, his his run defense, I think, is is one of the best in the league. He he throws his body out there with no care in the world. He is a competitor. He is a fiery competitor, and he's going to do whatever he can to take you down. What happened last year was this. Uh, Raekwon McMillan tore his ACL in the very first snap he played in his professional career in preseason. You had guys filling in at linebacker in different spots. He was out of position playing for the first year, out of position, thinking way too much. And what his downfall was, he was trying to make up for the mistakes that the other linebackers were making. So he wasn't staying true to his assignment. He was looking around, trying to do everything else, and making sure everything else was covered. Uh, This year, he has Raekwon McMillan back in the middle. He has Jerome Baker who has surprised the heck out of me. I was not high on the pick, but he has done a phenomenal job this season. He has more help. He has guys doing their job. Raekwon had his best season against New England, according to Pro Football Focus, and according to defensive coordinator Matt Burke as well. And uh, Sorry, not PFF. It was Matt Burke who said that. And Matt Burke said he actually didn't have any misreads or any screw-ups on his run fits. So Raekwon's improving. Kiko is just getting better and better. He's having a tremendous season. And I said Jerome Baker as well. He's having a great year. Very fast linebacker. And they've been using him to cover the scat backs out of the backfield and tight ends and blitzing from time to time. So the Dolphins linebacker core, it's not you know one of the best in the league, but it is improving each and every week throughout the season. And Kiko Alonso specifically is a lightning rod that really we're, we're not talking about, but... I've seen some things like, hey, let's vote Kiko into the Pro Bowl, and he kind of fits the, the bill statistically. But then you look – so how do you make sense of those two diametrically opposed narratives there? So it, obviously it's somewhere in between. What I compare Kiko to, I just – I compare him to a puppy, and he's excited – he likes to see things in front of him, and he is energetic, and he he does he he makes really good plays for this defense. But then when things are happening behind him, he gets a little distracted, and then things can get a little bit poor, especially in pass coverage. So when things are in front of him, I, I feel good. When things are behind him, I'm not feeling so good. And then, you know, he's getting the lion's share of the, the snaps in the linebacker unit. So then you have the two Ohio State guys, Raekwon and Jerome. Jerome has been a, a really pleasant, you know, uh, addition for us, especially in run defense. I thought he was going to struggle there. I thought he was going to be strictly a niche linebacker, pass coverage kind of guy. And he has he's held up in run defense a lot better than expected. Raekwon has had... We talked about gap integrity earlier. One of the main culprits has been Raekwon so far. So he seems to have cleaned that up a little bit. So we just need to know if that is a sign of things to come or if that was just more inconsistent play. All right. That's all um, pretty fascinating stuff. I guess uh, uh, you still obviously have some more questions you, you should uh, you might want to ask me. But I do want to get one last thing out of the way. Is Xavier Howard – Good. Yes, no, he's I a light. So. He's elite. He's elite. 
He's elite. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I, I, I compared really him to. Oh, okay. Uh, that's oh, that's interesting because like I think you know so obviously the first couple of weeks uh you know he was playing really well and some people were like ah oh, he's, he's the next new corner that you know people need to talk about. It felt like he had fallen off in the conversation since there. From what I've watched, I've kind of compared him to D'Angelo Hall, um, where he's kind of a bit of a gambler, it seems like. Um, but, you know, sometimes that gambling doesn't work out, and so I, I just kind of wanted to know. Um, well, that's all That's really good to hear. Uh, what, what do you have uh, – what other burning questions do you have about you know, the Vikings that maybe I could answer? I've been wondering one all day today, and that is okay. I want to know the status of Fran Tarkenton, is he, if he's going to play on Sunday or not. <laughs> Uh, Fran's out. Uh, Chris Carter. Um, he's. I How mean, Chris Cunningham? Carter's had a great season, but he's out. Is he playing? Oh yeah. <laughs> Randy Moss. Well, uh, well, the real question is, who's Culpepper playing for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vikings one half, Dolphins the next. <laughs> I mean, th- uh, this has been great. Uh, I kind of like the 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 format between the two of us talking. Um, so yeah, I, I think it'd be good to get maybe a score prediction out of the way. Obviously everyone knows that they're meaningless. We're never right, but right. it's fun. <laughs> so, uh, we might as well do it. How about you guys go first? Yeah, I, I do have a lot of confidence in the dolphins right now. Um, I had tweeted out earlier in the week that momentum solves 80% of your problems. And it's, it's true. You have momentum. You look at a train having momentum can crash through a brick wall. You train not having any momentum can't move anything, right? The Dolphins coming off that miracle in Miami, having tons of momentum going into this weekend. Obviously, the momentum only lasts so long. So it's going to last for the start of the game. The Dolphins can get off to a fast start. They can keep the momentum going. The Vikings can stop their momentum coming in. Then it's back to square one, and the, both teams are pretty evenly matched there. Uh, I am worried about the your receiving core. I am worried about you know the, the big plays that Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen can create. Kirk Cousins, you never know when he's going to go off, and, of course, the uncertainty with your new offensive coordinator there. All that being said, I do think the Dolphins have a very good chance coming to this week, and I think they have all the confidence in the world right now, and and I do think uh, it's going to be a very close game, but I do think the Dolphins will be victorious in the end. That doesn't sound like a score. That just sounds like a... All right, right. let (laughs) me give you a score. 24-17. That's my score. All right. I think we exasperated a lot in the Miami Miracle. God bless that game. I love it for the rest of my life. I do think there will be some regression to the mean, especially on the road. I'm looking at a 27-20 victory for the Vikings. Uh, As as a a former uh, fan-slash-reporter of a uh, city alliterative miracle, I'll have to say the track record's not good. So <laughs> I think that uh, the uh, the Vikings have the ability to to take advantage of the lost focus or whatever it is that, that Drake come from behind victories. Uh, and uh, actually, I think the spread is something like 7.5. I don't think the Vikings quite cover, but I think they get really close. Uh, 31-24, bad beat for somebody. Um, and... Uh, yeah, no, I, I think the Vikings come away with the home field advantage. Plus, I, I think that the matchups all tend to favor uh, the Vikings in, in marginal ways uh, across the board. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm picking the Vikings. We'll see how it plays out. They play the games for a reason, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, if, if they played them all on paper, the Vikings would have beaten the Bills. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, no, the Vikings have a lot of potential uh, threats there, and if Xavier Howard does not play, it, it increases their chances uh, big time. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick struggled against Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon didn't put up a big ton of stats, but he did get the chunk plays when it mattered the most. So, uh, And then you always have the new offensive coordinator, uh, new coach, whatever it might be, players paying attention just a little bit more. The, uh, I believe it's the Patrick Ewing effect. Uh, where players just really right. you know, yeah. pick up everything around them a lot more. They pay attention more just because there's a new coach there or a player out or a new player, and everyone just steps up their game there. So I am worried about that. Arif, it's been fun. Thank you for joining us here on Finsider Radio. We greatly appreciate all of the insight against the Minnesota Vikings as we head into this matchup. Very important matchup for both teams. Uh, good luck, and we'll talk to you later. All right, thanks so much, man. This has been great. And that's going to do it for us here on Finsider Radio. We'll be back with you again early next week after the Dolphins take on the Vikings. For Aaron Sutton, I am Matt Kanata. Thank you for listening to Finsider Radio. We'll talk to you next time. That was Finsider Radio, part of the Finsider.com and the SB Nation Network. Miami has the Dolphins, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, we're always in control. And when you say Miami, you're talking Super Bowl, because we're the Miami Dolphins. Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Yes, we're the Cause we're the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Yes, we're the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Everybody, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Yes, we're the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. 
With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Support for Pivot comes from Polestar. At Polestar, every inch of every vehicle they design is thoughtfully made. They're made to transform auto performance, accelerating from 0 to 60 in less than 4.2 seconds with fully electric all-wheel drive. They're made to elevate the driving experience with LED headlights and a panoramic glass roof. And they're made to uphold a greater responsibility to the planet using sustainable materials and energy-saving systems. The result is a car that combines the best of today with the technology of tomorrow. Pure performance, pure design, Polestar. Design yours and book a test drive today at polestar.com.